Warning, All Things Crime is a true crime production that may contain violent or disturbing material. Viewer or listener discretion is advised. Indicator. So what I do is, is then come along and I go, this is the sort of person or persons you're looking for. If I can tell you probably what, you know, why they did it. So was it a sex crime? Was it property? Was it like a personal, interpersonal crime? Was it a hate crime? Those sorts of things. Will they do it again? Have they done it before? If they have done it before, what will it look, what will it have looked like? You know, it's not always the same. If they do it later, what will it have looked like? Can the the victims change in what way? And so what I'm doing is I'm drumming up leads so that when a case sort of stalls, they're able to have new avenues to explore based on behavioral interpretation. So really linking crimes based on their signature, victimology, time and setting um, to a lesser degree, MO, but then also saying this is the kind of person that did it. When we get into the weird stuff, there tends to be a more compulsive element to it. So the person can't stop. And so, and the, you know, targeting of strangers too, right? That's the stranger. Most people, people don't realize that it's really uncommon for a stranger to be targeted. Like you're way more likely to be killed by someone, you know. So the guy you're worried about across the street is less likely to kill you than your brother or whatever. And that's just a statistical reality, right? So just the, the sort, of, uh, sort of stranger homicides in general are rare. And then throwing on various sexual and, um, you know, pathological motivations, um, extremely rare, but very dangerous for that reason. Because once one of those great white sharks is on the loose, they can hurt a lot of people and a lot of different families and leave a a big mark on society. So yeah, someone's got to do that. They don't need the easy stuff. You know, that's why they call them grounders, solving those other types of murder. Um, I'll give you an example. There is a cop I met that was working in child pornography, which thankfully I've never had to do that. Like to those guys, I actually think have it worse than me. If you want to talk about, you know, looking into the abyss every day, you know, having to look at those images, I've never had to do that. But I met this cop and, you know, this is what he did every day, but he came to one of my lectures and I think I'd done sexual sadism and necrophilia in about an hour or an hour and a half that day. And we were out having drinks later and he said, I want to thank you for teaching me that because I've seen some things and I didn't know what they were until you just told me. And, you know, when you hear that, you, you feel good because like, okay, but at the same time, it feels bad to know that, <laughs> you know, he just saw what I just described is, is pretty harrowing. So for me, there's almost some safety in, in being removed from it. You know, I can, I can teach it. I can study it from afar. I can interview these people, but if I need to move on, I can. It's not like this is your case. You know, you have to, I don't have to talk to families, right? That would be the hardest thing for me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, having to go to a family who's had something horrific, like a, a stranger murder, sexual 
homicide type deal happen and try and be of one mind with them and put and ensure them, give them full confidence that I'm going to solve it. And then actually also be the other person who has able to solve it. Right. Like it's uh, that part I'm thankful for. Well, and that's, of, of all the the detectives and even street cops or, or crime scene investigators, it, it doesn't really matter. If they're part of the investigative process, they're going to be also working with victims and victims' families. And I agree yeah. with you. That's I, I think that's got to be one of the more emotionally taxing portions of it because I'm sure a victim's family, just like we're sitting here talking about all these horrific crimes and and the mental yeah. processes that people purely theoretically, yeah, right, right. But it's like trying to explain the the abyss uh, because that that has to be one of the most harrowing questions that's out there for why? every victim and his victim's family is how could why, this happen to me? Right, and what why, why did, someone why did that? this happen? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and for a detective to, to sit there, especially one that maybe doesn't have, hasn't gone through your training or uh, even, even real extensive training when they actually talk about the abyss. So he or she may not know. And then how do you sit there in front of a grieving parent or, or somebody saying, you know, explain to me, you're supposed to be the expert. You're, you're the detective. You're the guy that's gone through this for forever. And, and maybe this is a Cloyd question because of all the times that he's had to do it, but how how do those how do those detectives not only process the case that they're that they're working on, and all of them are emotionally invested in it, and then to also have to deal with the families, and and try to explain to them not just physically and, and mentally yeah. what they're what they're doing in order to solve the case, but also how do you provide any level of comfort to these victims and victims' families. Well, how do you bring the structure or the meaning back to it? Like what we were talking about before, right? Like these people were living their lives and then suddenly one day someone just grabbed their heads and said, Hey, here's the abyss. Look at it. Right. You know, I don't want to be in that situation. And I've talked to some sexual assault survivors and they seem to think that I'm okay with it. So I don't know, maybe I'm underselling myself a bit. I haven't, yes, I have actually have talked to people who are family members of murder victims, but you now there's certain murders that would be, and, and uh, I wouldn't want to talk to them often. You know what I mean? So for me, I'm secluded in this little area where I get to study it and I get to interpret it. And it's like, I'm uh, solving dark puzzles. And I don't have to worry about the other side of that, you know, the people who are impacted by it, because to me, that is an easy uh, moral question to, to answer. Like, I, I, I don't ruminate on what the right thing to do is. To me, the right thing to do is to solve that case. Now, how that ham- that family handles it, that's up to someone else, right? That's. But what I like is, here's the puzzle. Here's the nature of it. it you know, it's, 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 it's lacking finish here, but in, but over here, it's incredibly graphic and it's like doing this little Rubik's cube and then, and then trying to, and you, you have to work with a team too. Right. And then together trying to solve that and then pass it along the line and then give me another puzzle because I can't be that and that at the same time. Oh, nobody can. Yeah. That's, that's the, that's the whole uh, nature of the beast as well as the beauty of being involved in these kind of things is like you said, it's just this massive puzzle. And 
I don't know if you saw the, the interview that I did with Joe Kennedy, but one, one of the things that he said was that all of us are kind of contributing in our own way. And sure. my involvement with MBAC systems is, is purely on the side of providing a system that can collect DNA where it can't be collected at other places. But that's, that's just one cog in the, in the wheel. It's you know, a we, pretty we, huge game changer well, though, Jared. Sure, it, it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a big piece of the puzzle especially once you get into cold cases where they've already tried other DNA pieces. But when you look at uh, it, well, in fact, there was another interview that I did with uh, Mihul and Jara, and he was, he was talking about being a DNA analyst. And at one point he was going to law school because his thought was how awesome would it be to have lawyers that are educated in the DNA process. And at some, but at some junction, you have to look at it and you say, is it physically possible to be an expert and, and be able to do it all? And I say no, because once you get into the level of expertise that even a good trial lawyer has, or somebody like you, where you're specializing in certain types of crimes, you can't be an expert in everything. And so I, I think once you start diluting one area in order to develop expertise in other areas, you start not only reducing your ability to actually contribute, but part of what you are gets diluted as well. And it's, you, you've got to, you've got to find your focus in land, your purpose in life and just go for it. And it, it, it can't, you can't be a jack of all trades, I guess is my point. Well, that's it. And what you're good at and what you want to do is also dependent on your personality and your personality is fairly fixed. In fact, I would say that there's probably some evidence that aspects of it are even genetically inherited. So for myself, you know, I came out of more of an arts and humanities background. That's just who I've always been. You know, as you said, I've written books, but I working on a novel and it's not like I'm this guy who had this career and then decided to do a novel. I was, I was supposed to have done a novel a long time ago and then I had to get this career you know what I mean like I was born a very artistic person I loved history and philosophy and um, very much interested in in people more of an anthropological approach to things so for me uh, and I could actually be a decent lawyer I just find it very boring uh, but I, I enjoy our argument you know like uh, the, the sort of verbal and and mental sparring so I, I even developed myself to be um, quite a logical person, which is not natural um, generally to someone who's artistic too, or, right? So I've already flexed enough in that area, but for me to go on and, you know, try and be a full-on scientist or to try and learn about... I don't know, pathology or something like that. You don't need all those things. What you just need is enough of them that you're good at what you need, you're needed for in the team. So I'm always trying to bone up on little things like uh, right now I'm studying blood spatter. Okay. Yeah. I could outsource it, but wouldn't it be more useful if I could look at a crime scene and while I'm reading all the behavioral stuff, which is really my wheelhouse right now, uh, look at the blood spatter and say, well, the body was moved or the perpetrator walked over here because of the drips or whatever. And because that's also relevant to the behavioral part as well. So I should strengthen that area. I'm Mike Morford, and I've been researching the Zodiac case for years. Zodiac, just the name. It sounds sinister. It inspires fear. 
The fact that a serial killer would give himself this moniker is disturbing. He would go on to taunt police by sending letters and codes to newspapers for years. And the attacks, they were something else altogether. If you were a young couple in a secluded area, you could easily be a target. And it wasn't just shootings on dark lovers' lanes. Zodiac would even attack with a knife in broad daylight while wearing an executioner-style hood. After a while, Zodiac changed tactics, and even lone cab drivers weren't safe. The Zodiac Killer terrorized the San Francisco Bay Area and then vanished, but he left a lot of clues behind along the way. Clues that we're going to examine closely on the new podcast, Zodiac Speaking. New episodes of Zodiac Speaking come out every other Saturday starting March 13, 2021. Subscribe today wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. But what I shouldn't try and do is become like a Susanna Ryan because we have Susanna Ryans and it's going to be so difficult for me to move my personality and my skill set in that direction. Just what's the point, right? That's exactly my point is because at some junction, you're going to start diluting your own expertise in order to develop other expertise. And that's, that's not what's needed for the team effort. And that's, that was one of the things that, that Joe was emphasizing is he's saying solving any kind of a case, especially a, a complex case, something that's cold, something that uh, hasn't, hasn't really had any developments for sometimes decades. Mm-hmm. Well, if you look at it as a team effort and that, especially if you're comfortable in your own space and you recognize your contribution to the team is going to be significant, then you're not threatened by all these other areas. And I, I think that's one of the biggest problems with solving crime in general is that when you, and, and I shouldn't say you, but I, I see- Yeah, yeah the, 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 the we, you. Like yeah, the, yeah, the, absolutely. The and, yeah. But, but sometimes like detectives, for example, when they are assigned a case and it's not one of those just simple, you know, hey, I, I killed my wife because she didn't balance the checkbook right. And it's more complex than that. Then once, once you get out of that little realm, then you have to start calling in expertise that you, that you don't have. And I, I think that's one of the biggest issues in the, the entire investigative process is recognizing where a, a detective or even a prosecuting attorney or somebody like that, that has, when it's not, when it's no longer a standard case, I guess. And, uh, and when, uh, I have some thoughts on this actually, now that you're okay. talking about it. Bring I think, it on, man. Yeah. I think that this is a relatively new phenomenon. I think that this idea of the superhero who always gets it done and works solitary is a product of the media age, right? So people reading about Sherlock Holmes, sure, he's got Dr. Watson, but that's more a guy to bounce ideas off. Or um, what's his name? Augustin uh, Dupin or for whatever it was from the murders in the room morgue, you know, this brilliant man who just sits in a room and thinks and, and solves the puzzle or you take it in the legal area and it's like Perry Mason or detectives and it's Columbo or Hercule Poirot. These ideas that there are just these brilliant uh, protagonists and that we must be like them. Well, there's a reason those people exist in fiction. <laughs> In fact, uh, just uh, uh, something that most people don't know, the first criminal profiler actually was, unfi- was in fiction before it was in reality. 
which was in uh, Poe's Murders in the Rue Morgue. But I think that's where it came from. And it's an unreasonable burden to expect of someone, you know, and then you have to ask yourself, well, why do I want that? Why do I want to be known as like the guy? And it's because you're probably coveting some level of celebrity. And why is that? Because me, once again, the sort of media age, and I think it's wisdom and, and a healthy level of experience and being humbled, which teaches you that that guy is just a fiction and we're all different parts of a team. So maybe what I should talk about, Jared, is I, don't, I haven't really talked about specifically what I would do in a team. I should elaborate on that a bit. Oh, please. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm kind of the guy at the end of the assembly line. In fact, we restructured ASOC uh, this way recently. Before it was sort of like everyone take a look and then individually send in your opinions. Well, then you're getting the opinions of um, atomized individuals rather than where what we tried to do is make it more of an assembly line. So you get the hard scientists and the crime scene reconstructionists looking at it first. And the crime scene reconstructionist once again, this isn't me, but they'll be able to say to you, well, that was knocked over in the struggle. And she was actually seems to have been killed on the bed and then dragged onto the floor later. And uh, the killer closed the door and they'll be able to do that because they look at the crime scene or the crime scene photos and they can detect all the evidence. And then you've got, of course, your CSI people collecting all the hard evidence that comes first. Sometimes it doesn't even need to get to me. Most of the times it doesn't even need to get to me. But I'm kind of at the end of the line where it's like, okay, so now we have quite a good picture of things, except we have either no suspects or too many suspects. And we need to know how to whittle this pool down. And we also need to know, is this guy going to do it again? Or has he done it before? Because that might help us jog up some more clues. So what I do is I take a look at the behavior at the crime scene. Um, and sometimes you have different crime scenes, right? You might have a point of encounter, point where the murder happens, a point where the body is found. And even, like I said, people that write weird letters or make phone calls, that's, that's all in there too. And so what I do is I look at those things separately and in their totality. And I will, using my vast knowledge of different types of perpetrators and my knowledge of various sexual paraphilias, and um, signature behaviors and the difference between that and MO. MO is what a person needs to commit a crime. So let's say the crime is murder. Well, what did you need to do to commit a murder? So it's almost seems superfluous. So, okay, well, that person was murdered. They had to stab them 200 times. There is your signature, right? If it was five times, you wouldn't really be asking that question, but it's the 200 times. Or, you know, why did they pose them in that strange way? Or why did they cover their face with a sheet, right? Even in getting into now, and I learned this from Joe Kennedy, analyzing 911 phone calls. That the, the person who made the 911 phone call uh, have something to do with the crime? Because I can listen to that now and give you a pretty good indicator. So what I do is, is then come along and I go, this is the sort of person or persons you're looking for. If I can tell you probably what, you know why they did it, so was it a sex crime? Was it property? Was it like a personal, interpersonal crime? Was it a hate crime? 
those sorts of things. Will they do it again? Have they done it before? If they have done it before, what will it look, what will it have looked like? You know, it's not always the same. If they do it later, what will it have looked like? Can the the victims change in what way? And so what I'm doing is I'm drumming up leads so that when a case sort of stalls, they're able to have new avenues to explore based on behavioral interpretations. So really linking crimes based on their signature, victimology, time and setting um, to a lesser degree, MO, but then also saying this is the kind of person that did it and, and why. And I just want to clarify something about, sure, we can call it offender profiling, criminal profiling, but I think sometimes, once again, because of media and certain profilers who think of themselves as characters in the media, that profiling is conceived of as like uh, you're playing The Sims or something like that. And you've got all these little people running around and the profiler is this brilliant person who just looks and goes, plucks that guy out and he goes, it's him because he fits my profile, right? Give me a break. It cannot work that way right? It can only work with you've got suspects already, or you're about to start collecting more suspects. Now, how many of those points do they hit? And then you triage them the same way you would do in a a hospital or, you know, an emergency room. Look, this guy here is having a heart attack. This person here has a cold, right? Uh, Let's prioritize the heart attack guy. So with the profile, I'm not you know, reaching into the ether and plucking out the killer. What I'm saying is that, let's say in this hypothetical crime, the perpetrator is likely to be a black male between the ages of 20 and 30 with a record of window peeping, maybe going into houses. And so, yeah, he may have a criminal record for that and prioritize that over people who aren't like that. Yet at the same time, you know, don't eliminate them based on that. But I'm telling you that, you know, you guys, it's time is money, particularly in an investigation, right? Like you have to be able to triage who you're looking at and this helps them to do that. So yeah, that's more or less what I do. Which is fascinating. And one of the primary reasons that uh, I wanted to have you on this show because we didn't really have a chance to talk about what the whole purpose of the All Things Crime series is, but part of it is just to not only explore how things are done, and again, your piece of the puzzle is such a, a fascinating area, especially for anybody that actually looks at the entire process of the, the crime-solving area, but also just to, to kind of humanize portions of it, but also law enforcement in general. It's like, like what you just explained is such an intricate process. You know, it's Mm -hmm. not like anybody can just walk into a crime scene and say, oh yeah, okay, this is, this is how this crime was done. Mm -hmm. There's actual scientific, uh, not only evidence and weight, but also how that evidence is collected. And that Mm -hmm. all requires specific training. And then to get into once you, once you move past the physical portions of it, then you start getting into the psychological and the mental and, and those yeah. kind of areas of actually why that, that happened. Interpretation. And, and, right. And yeah. being able to interpret that properly, that all requires vast amounts of knowledge and training. And 
I don't think society fully appreciates that. And that's the primary reason that I that I wanted to start this video cast because until people fully understand and appreciate what happens after a crime is committed, then they don't really fully appreciate all of the people that are working so hard in order to actually solve cases. And because again, a cold case or a case that is lingering on it, it may still be actively investigated, but it's it's taking longer to be solved. That's like a gaping wound. And, and the whole concept, and I think it was uh, Joe actually said, you know, there's no such thing as closure. We all agree on that, by the way. That's yeah. a good way to know if someone knows what they're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've talked to enough victims' families and, and enough people that are still involved with whether they're active on social media, you know, keeping their their loved one's uh, memory alive, you know, whatever. They never fully, even when the case is solved, they never fully understand or, and, and they never fully heal. So solving the case is just part of it. Helping society as a whole, I think, is, is equally important. And that's, that's why I think society needs to understand and needs to appreciate what guys like you and other law enforcement professionals that go through in order to solve these cases, because it's a Herculean effort, especially on some of these cold cases that in, yeah. in order to get these things solved and for anybody to be ungrateful for that to me, just doesn't, doesn't resonate. I, I just can't quite comprehend it. Thank you for listening to all things crime. We are so grateful for all of our listeners. If you enjoyed this, please give us a positive review so other people can find it as well. Have an amazing All Things Crime Day.